0: A ago. The podcast platform of the Phenomenalist by Leopold Lambert. Today, Manufacturing Rightlessness The Camp as a Legal Fiction with Naomi. Hello everyone. Today, my guest is Naomi Paik, who's going to start very soon uh, teaching at the University of Illinois in Champaign in uh, Asian and American, Asian American studies. Um, and uh, in uh, about a year and a half from now, she's going to publish a book called right- Righteousness at His. So far, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, and that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. Uh, hello, Naomi. Hi. <laughs>
1: thanks for having me.
0: No, Thanks for taking the time to talk to me. Um, so maybe um, uh, the the first thing we should do we we're going to try to follow uh, the structure of your book to talk to talk about it, uh, which is divided in three parts. Uh, three parts that uh, corresponds each of them corresponds to uh, 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 his historical moment of, um, of the typology of the camp. Uh, mm-hmm. But before we really jump into those three parts one by one, could you maybe introduce uh, uh, the book itself and, the, and what those three parts are about?
1: Sure, so um, I'm writing this book called Rightlessness and it focuses on how um, the US state produces what I'm calling rightless subjects by imprisoning them in camps. And so I am um, situating this in a kind of more contemporary moment from, I'm calling it the era of rights ascension, but it's essentially kind of the... Twilight of the Cold War into the present. And I'm seeing this uh, kind of moment, historical moment, as consolidating a couple of different things that all kind of work together and are interrelated. So one of them is um, the rise of the United States as kind of global hegemon, as like the world's sole superpower. And then the other um, kind of phenomenon that we're seeing is the ascension of rights discourses, um, becoming the kind of lingua franca of political discourse, both in the United States and then inter- in internationally. So, you know, with the end of the Cold War, you kind of, um, with the demise of the Soviet Union and things like this, uh, you know, you kind of have these kind of other ways of thinking about universalisms or other kinds of utopian thinking they kind of die away, (laughs) you know, um, I would say in the 1970s. And I'm thinking alongside other kind of human rights scholars like Samuel Moyne. And then in the kind of eclipsing of that, we see rights discourses like human rights and civil rights kind of come to the fore as like the only way or one of the primary ways that we think about making rights claims or justice claims. Right. And I think that there's a relationship between this ascension of rights and then the ascension of the United States also as being like the most uh, globally dominant power, that they actually facilitate each other, that the United States has used rights discourses to kind of um, extend its tentacles around the, around the world. Right. So one of the main questions that I'm thinking about is, how is it that as rights discourses become... Um, so ascendant at this in this period, how is it then that we see this other phenomenon, like the kind of underside of this going on where the United States is producing right-less subjects? Subjects for whom rights have no kind of protection, right? Mm-hmm. That they, even if they use the language of human rights or civil rights to make claims for justice, they are seen as not being the, the proper subjects of rights, right, and so I'm trying to think about this kind of paradox right at this historical moment and the way that i do it is that um one of the ways that i do it is by looking at the testimonies of rightless subjects how do they negotiate this paradox right from within the camp from maybe being out after they're released how do they then you know continue to draw on this language to make justice claims
0: so the 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 three camps that you're mm-hmm. looking at in particular are uh uh one the Japanese internment camps during the second world war in mm-hmm. uh in the u s mm-hmm. and uh and uh, you you approach it in a very specific way so i'll i'll talk about it in in, in, a, in a minute but as uh, the, the second one is the is those uh, those uh, camp of uh, refugees who are uh, HIV, po- which were who were HIV positive, and that flee Haiti after uh, the 1991 coup against uh, Jean-Bertrand Aristide, mm-hmm. and then the third one is there, um, is the current uh, camp Delta in uh, Guantanamo. Actually, the, the the one of the Haitian refugee was also in Guantanamo. So mm-hmm. there's also an interesting uh, Palimpsest. Uh, uh, mm-hmm happening here mm-hmm. but so so we're going to go one one by one uh into those um, status of rightlessness uh, and uh, as i said the first one is there uh, the japanese inter- uh, japanese american intern internment camps during the second war but the way you approach them is not as much from uh, uh their, from that historical era of mm-hmm. the second world war but more with in the retrospective construction of the claim of rights that uh, that uh, obtain reparation, some reparation, and therefore some uh, uh, debate in, in the end of the 80s. Is that right?
1: Yes, that's right. So basically, instead of um, approaching Japanese internment at the time that the camps were operative during World War II, I'm looking at it um, at the time of redress. So in 1998... Um, the United States passed a law that granted redress to surviving internees. So pe- they gave you know $20,000 check to each of the people who were, they had to be citizens or permanent residents at the time and they had to be interned at the time and they still had to be living. So it couldn't go on like if the person died to his or her children or anything like that. But um, so this was seen as being a really great thing right that the United States was kind of coming to terms with this terrible kind of episode in its history that it was, you know, confronting its own racist past and overcoming it through this legislation by apologizing formally publicly and with, you know, the gravitas of monetary reparations to this group of people, right? So that's one story of it, right? So I'm kind of looking at yes, it what I'm looking at it again, from a kind of different angle, have a different read of it. So on the one hand, yes, it was a very good thing. Um, it is the culmination of years of, you know, organizing by um, uh, people who were interned and their descendants and then other people who were um, invested in social justice issues. But having said that, what I'm arguing is that um, redress actually becomes productive for the United States right, for the U.S. state government. And the way that I'm thinking about this is that um, on the one hand, uh, redress was enabled by this ascension of rights, right? So um, in a certain way, it is kind of the inheritor of civil rights movements, right, other kinds of rights claims and things like this, right? Um, But on the other hand, I think that uh, the way in which redress was achieved kind of papered over the way, uh, how the United States continues to use racist governance against other kinds of groups, right? And that it papers over the fact that these kind of technologies of imprisonment, of capture, um, you know, of sweeping away certain kinds of populations has never gone away. Right? but we're pretending that by like saying that internment was a bad thing, that it should have never happened, that it was you know, the result of racist thinking at the time, and we admit that and we're moving past it, that in fact, it kind of papers over the continuing racist governance that is going on. Mm-hmm. right? And so I'm thinking about how, um, uh, on the, and, and then it's also like not necessarily a good thing for Japanese Americans or Asian Americans, right? And I think that um, Redress is a really good example about how Asian Americans and Japanese Americans kind of get used in this new kind of racial configuration that helps the United States um, kind of deny its continuing racism, right? By kind of valorizing certain kinds of groups that are not white. Mm. Right, um, as being model minorities at the same time that they kind of shore up the distinction between like, model minorities and problem minorities. And problem minorities continue to be subject to you know, imprisonment and arrest and capture and things like this. And so um, one of the ways that I talk about you know, the historical moment is that only three years after redress, um, we see the emergence of this Haitian refugee camp. Right? And so I'm trying to think about this moment in terms of how the United States um, kind of refines and refines its strategies, right? So it can no longer say um, we're gonna imprison this group of people based on their ethnicity or their race, but they continue to do it anyway through kind of non-explicitly racialized ways, mm-hmm. right? And so um, I'm trying to think about we're seeing at this moment a moment of shift in the way the United States is able to kind of become more sophisticated in its strategies, but still produce the same kinds of results. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, and I have, a, I have a few questions about that. But mm-hmm. Maybe to, to, to go back to the very beginning of what you were saying, mm-hmm. and I, I hope it's not uh, I hope it's not besides the point, mm-hmm. but sometimes there's some interesting. Uh, interesting things that emerge from uh, uh, a very down-to-earth administrative thing. So mm-hmm. I, I was actually wondering whether you you knew what the twenty thousand uh, dollars mm-hmm. correspond to. Meaning, like the apology, I, mm-hmm. I understand very well the uh-huh. the, the symbolic power of that it can have. Mm-hmm. But then it's intru- there's I feel there's an interesting question that emerged for the administrative power to. Uh-huh. To wonder, like, okay, so what is, what is the right amount of money right. that would, that would say we're sorry, but also, of uh-huh. course, we don't want to go too crazy. Right. <laughs> so, so I'm, I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying to. <clears throat> I suppose I'm asking you whether you know what, what, what's hidden behind yeah. these calculations because yeah. sometimes there can be an interesting thing.
1: Yeah, I mean I think um no it, it's a really great question and it's like what is the proper amount <laughs> how do you redress, how do you like actually come up with a monetary figure that would actually repair mm. this history. 3
0: years of internment, Right,
1: <laughs> exactly. And not just like um you know those 3 years but it's also like and this goes into parts of um other things that I argue in the book but like it's not just those three years, it's everything that happens afterwards, Mm -hmm. right? It's also about there's a kind of fundamental shift that happens in the person that cannot, that might be beyond repair, right? Um, The $20,000 is a really interesting issue. It was um, kind of proposed by people who were calling for redress, right? And they were, their argument was, is that just saying, just giving an apology without anything else behind it kind of feels empty, Mm -hmm. right? Um, They also did a lot of calculations around the losses of property, right? So um, because Japanese people who were evacuated and interned um, had to shutter businesses and houses and things like this so quickly, a lot of people lost everything, right? They lost their land, they lost their, you know, Running businesses, they lost their homes, things like this. And then a lot of that could not be recouped after the war, mm. right? And so they did a lot of calculations around that. And so each person who um, either submitted documents for a redress or testified for a redress, they were asked to talk about their actual losses of property right? And maybe emphasize less the, what could have been more important to them, which was like the more emotional or affective costs, right? Um, but that does come into play in terms of these figures. And what's interesting also is that at the same time that there's this kind of legislative, um, redress, there was also, um, a federal court case that was being argued, right? And it was kind of, um, kind of, uh, a subtle critique of the legislation because the federal court case, the people who were bringing it to the courts, they thought that redress was too, um, was not um, radical enough, right? And they were just like, actually, if you look at even the calculations, $20,000 doesn't cover it at all. Mm-hmm. And so what they wanted was a much more extensive Um, redress for each person, each claimant in the case. And part of it wasn't necessarily that they would win the case, it was dismissed out of court pretty um, easily, but it was more to make the point, right? That on the one hand, there's no amount of money that can make up for this loss. But on the other hand, even if you look at the actual figures, $20,000 falls really, really way short, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So yeah, but even as the government granted redress, even their rhetoric was $20,000 can never make up for this. Mm-hmm. So it's really a symbolic gesture that we are really genuinely, sorry, we really genuinely want to confront this past, you know, with you and help you kind of move on as well. But it's that very rhetoric of like, let's all move on, right? That is the problem, right? That it, it, it enables a certain kind of memory that also forgets <laughs> important parts of this story, mm-hmm. right?
0: So uh, I'm gonna start asking uh, spa- spatial questions. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 as I told you, it would be uh, mm-hmm. probably part of my interest. But um, I'm interested to already point out that in the three examples you you picked, their mm-hmm. uh, their um, this first one of the, the Japanese American internment camps mm-hmm. um, are very much embodying. Uh, geographically, the, the the way we 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 think of camps are being uh, inclusive exclusion, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. because they were they were very much on the uh, American uh, right a, American uh, territory, territory, right? Mostly on the west, if I remember correctly. But... Yes, yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Eight of them were mostly in the western deserts, and then two of them were in kind of the swamps, swamplands of Arkansas.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So. Um, I suppose it's uh, it's it's not even a question. It's it's more it's more a point to think about already here, mm-hmm. as we're going to talk about the two other examples mm-hmm. that already showed that uh, mm-hmm. there's clearly has been some thinking made in there by the, uh, mm-hmm. the successive American administrations in the fact that mm-hmm. uh, we might want those camps to be uh, inclusive exclusions, but only on a legal level and not just, not as a geographical level. We should should actually have them as far as possible. Yes. In terms of pure geography.
1: Yeah. And it's not just the pure geography, but it is also a legal distinction, Mm -hmm. right? Because Guantanamo, the whole argument of putting camps there and that particular place is that um, you know, because of this legal history with the lease and yeah. um, or, so the, the United States has leased Guantanamo from the Cuban government. The Cuban government has refused to recognize this lease since 1959. But the terms of the lease say that um, this lease will go on in perpetuity, basically until both parties agree to cancel it. Mm. Well, because the United States finds it useful or has continued to find some kind of use for it, um, they refuse to cancel it. Okay, so they get to be there legally as long as they want to. Part of the terms of the agreement between the United States and Cuba is that Cuba has um, uh, juris- or, uh, sorry, so- ultimate Southern. sovereignty, yeah. and the United States has um, uh, jurisdiction and co- full ju- jurisdiction and control. Hmm. So between that kind of gap, the United States' argument has always been that there's kind of no legal regime there, you know, so like neither Cuban law nor United States law nor any international laws that either state has signed on to really applies there. So that's the kind of, it, so it is geographic, right? It's off of formal US territory. Mm-hmm. But it's also a legal thing as well. It's a legal fiction yeah. that they've created, right? Mm-hmm. That enables them to at least argue that um they can do they can use the space however they want to, right? Um, but part of my argument is and this is where i'm rubbing up against some other people who have written about this is that i don't think it's a legal black hole mm. i don't think it's a lawless space at all there are actually laws that apply there but because you have like these inter you have several different kind of legal regimes kind of overlapping and kind of separating in that particular space that, that it kind of leaves these little gaps, right. That, um, leave these prisoners kind of unprotected by rights, Mm -hmm. right. It enables them to be treated as if they are rightless subjects, Mm -hmm. right. They, even if they refuse that kind of designation, right.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, uh, so we already flew from from the from the United States to the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, us stay there. Okay. Uh, and and uh, approach the second part of in um, mm-hmm. this second uh, camp mm-hmm. that you're describing. Uh, I think it might be important that you you remind us of the, mm-hmm. the 1999 one, the 19 the 1991. Coup? Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, in Haiti and um, right. and and what it. Triggered in terms of uh, 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 displacement?
1: Right. Okay. So in 1991, uh, Jean Bertrand, or yeah, Jean Bertrand Aristide had recently been elected to the presidency. He was massively popular. He was leader of this thing called the Lavalus movement. Um, But he was kind of seen as, you know, uh, a preacher of the poor. He was immensely popular among like the masses of people, but very not popular with. you know, people who had more property, people who had more power, people who were already in kind of government office and things like this. So um, shortly after he took office, he was ousted in a coup d'etat led by uh, this man named Raul Sedras, who was supported by the United States. Okay, so he, um, once the coup happens, because he was so immensely popular and so widely supported by so many people, there's just massive violence in the island and it forces thousands of Haitians to flee the country for their lives, right? And so um, basically tens of thousands start leaving the country by small boats, okay? Um, The United States had already had um, this longer history of picking up these small boats from Haiti Um, giving a very cursory INS review and then sending them right back. Mm. So we've had this long history of this thing called the Haitian program of basically denying outright any Haitians claim to asylum or need for asylum, right? So we basically pick it up, you know, um, and accelerate it after the coup d'etat. And um, there was uh, an injunction By a legal charity, they saw what the Coast Guard was doing, which is basically picking them up in the waters and sending them right back. So they got an injunction. What the United States ends up doing in response to that injunction is sending them to Guantanamo. So that way, they're not actually on formal u s territory, and they can't um file as formal of an asylum claim, mm-hmm. but at the same time, they're not sending them back to mm-hmm. haiti so it's kind of like this in between kind of space that they could just be held for a while. But the camp ends up being having over twelve thousand people at one point, and so that's where i'm kind of I'm starting to pick up the story at around this time, right.
0: I see, mm-hmm. and so so the the camp's particularity is mm-hmm. is the fact that uh, from what from what I understand, because actually I was not familiar with with this mm-hmm. part of uh, of history, mm-hmm. is that the um, the refugees that were uh, uh, that were incarcerated there were uh, HIV positive. So.
1: Yeah, so um, so basically, there's this so the camp becomes this huge. Huge place, right? It's like twelve thousand people. There's like you know all these large. They're being held in large tents, mm. old airport hangars, things like this. As part of the processing, they start uh, running blood tests, right? So there's there's a multi kind of step you know, processing of all these refugees, you know, that you have to get an identification bracelet, you have to go through multiple INS screenings, you know, you get interviewed by community relations services to see if you've got any people who could house you in the United States like cousins or whatever. Um, And they go through a health screening, right, to test them for tuberculosis um, and at the time, HIV. So it turns out that some of the people who not only um, passed their asylum interview um, also tested positive for HIV. And so these people, the United States is like, okay, what do we do with these people? We can't send them back because we've always already said that like they have legitimate asylum claims. They are bona fide refugees, so we can't send them back but we don't want them in. Mm-hmm. We don't We don't want to bring them into the United States either because they have HIV. And it's also important to note that at this time, um, we had an HIV immigration ban, right? So we it, it was hard to enforce because, you know, you don't have to, when you're crossing a border, you know, they can't test you for HIV right there. So it's hard to enforce, but legally, we did have an HIV ban. Mm-hmm. And so... And it was the
0: beginning of the 90s. So I mean, that's, right. that's also complete different uh yes uh, approach to to hiv yes
1: yes absolutely and you know this is a time when hiv was not just in you know general the general public was not an under well understood mm-hmm. so there was still a lot of discrimination against people who had hiv you know people thought you could get it from a handshake or a kiss or something like this they thought it was that communicable um you know, there's, I mean, I have some statistics in, in the book that say, you know, almost 50 percent of Americans who were interviewed thought that, you know, we should that the HIV ban was like a good thing, that they thought that they should be excluded from schools and things like this. Right. So, you know, there's a lot of discrimination against people with HIV um, and a lot of lack of understanding of the disease as a disease, right? Um, it's before um, antiretroviral treatments um, become a thing, mm-hmm. right? And so the United States government just didn't know what to do with this group of people and the and their families. So some of them had kids or husbands or wives with them. So what they do is they basically find another part of Guantanamo. So um, the main camp is, like, on the Macalla Air Base. And then, like... They basically find this other kind of unused part of the base, mm-hmm. um, and then start bussing the HIV people, HIV positive refugees, and their families to this this part of the base, and they create a smaller camp there. And while the thousands of other refugees who were HIV negative, most of them were sent back to Haiti. Some of them got through, got asylum to the United States. Um, But most of them were sent back. So that camp ultimately closes down, right? But then you still have, like, about 300 people just stuck Mm. at Guantanamo because the U.S. doesn't know what to do with them. They would love for the guys to go back, right? And then they encourage them to sign voluntary repatriation waivers and things like this. But um, through the the kind of legal activism of some of like center for constitutional rights and other groups, there's a long process of, um, legal cases that work their way through the courts kind of on behalf of this group of refugees. Mm -hmm. So to allow them either to let them either out of Guantanamo and not back to Haiti. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I'm following the case through yeah, the courts.
0: I see, and uh, and we're starting to touch upon some things that I, I, I think is uh, fundamental in your in your research is, mm-hmm. um, um, I mean we we kind of we kind of explicit explicited it uh, it uh, ooh, sorry, mm-hmm. uh, um, so far as uh, being a sort of management of health, but mm-hmm. uh, at, at the end of the day, what 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 it really is about and what the camp is about is a management of life as well So the, it is so uh-huh. there's a sort of um of uh, uh attention in the way life is being preserved that mm-hmm. we, we will see with, with a mm-hmm. third example is even more uh, mm-hmm. uh explicit but um can you can you maybe uh address that a little bit
1: uh-huh yes so um I mean, this camp is a really interesting kind of space in terms of thinking about the management of life, because on the one hand, the United States is kind of constant. Their constant refrain to the refugees and to you know the press and to the public is that we are running a humanitarian mission. This is a humanitarian mission. We are um, we need to supply these refugees with food, shelter, and medical care. Mm-hmm. That's like the refrain: food, shelter, medical care. Okay, so they have this argument that they are meant to that they they're trying to foster these refugees lives right sustain their lives but if you actually look at the camp conditions on the ground especially from the perspective of the refugees the housing was terrible mm-hmm. you know it provided no shelter from tropical heat from rain Um, they, you know, tried to improvise solutions to the uh, inadequate housing, but they basically said that it's like unfit for human habitation. The food was like maggot ridden. So it was inedible, you know, the, um, and the medical care was abusive, basically. Um, they were, I mean, there's all these, uh, examples of being, Um, duped into taking medications that they didn't want, like birth control injections and things like this, but then also being held down um, by military police in order to get their blood drawn Mm -hmm. and things like this. Um, So there's medical care that's not care. There's shelter that's not shelter. There's food that's not food. So if you think about the management of life, what exactly is the standard for the management? What kind of life is being managed in this way, right? Um, And so I think the refugees have a critique of this kind of, what what does this humanitarian care look like when we're not being treated as if we're human, mm-hmm. right? Um, but on the other hand, they are, um, you know, the, the U.S. can't, like, you know, set these people out to die. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, they can't send them back to Haiti. They have to at least provide some kind of provisions for them. So I kind of see this camp as being a place in between, a lot of different things mm-hmm. so it 's geographically in between Haiti and the United states right. it 's legally between Cuban and u s legal regimes, and I think um, in terms of the way it 's managed on a day to day basis it 's kind of this place in between life and death, mm-hmm. right and so these refugees are you know infected with a deadly disease right they 're being held in completely unsanitary, unsafe conditions. Right. And they're being told that they could be there for 10 to 20 years or until uh, a cure for AIDS is found. Mm -hmm. Right. And so basically it's in terms of time. I mean, we know now in retrospect that it was, you know, basically around for three years. But at the time, they could have been there indefinitely Mm -hmm. for the rest of their lives. Right. So what does that mean exactly? It seems like it's between you're kind of like not quite living and this is what the refugees their testimony say is that we're kind of we're not living we're not dying we're just like we're just like existing here we mm-hmm. need to get out i'd rather i'd rather die i so, some of them said i would rather die in haiti or i need to live but not inside this camp mm-hmm. right and so it's this kind of in betwixt in between space between life and death And so I'm trying to think about what it means to exist in that kind of space, right? Mm -hmm. And the refugees actually kind of take things into their own hands by engaging in a hunger strike, right? To kind of say, well, if your mission is to provide us food, shelter, and medical care, we're going to deny all of that. Because you're not actually giving us the provisions for living. You're giving us provisions for maybe survival biologically, but we're not living. And so we're going to refuse all of the things that you say you're giving to us as like some benefactor or something like that. We're going to refuse all of that and make you see what kind of space you're actually making us live in, mm-hmm. right?
0: Well, I, I think the, the logic behind uh, the, the, the idea of, I mean, the, the action of uh, mm-hmm. hunger strike is, mm-hmm. is very much at the center of what we're trying to address here in the fact that... Uh, um, when we say preserving life, we're mm-hmm. it, it is very much understood as, as the minimum mm-hmm. to to actually uh, uh, live. Or as you say, mm-hmm. it's true that calling it surviving rather than living mm-hmm. uh, uh, makes a lot of sense, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And and it seems like the actual death is the only thing that seems to um, um, really shaken mm-hmm. their their uh, their. The tacit agreements that mm-hmm. uh, people can be incarcerated mm-hmm. uh, on only then only when 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 there starts to be uh, uh, I, I don't know if it's about the fact that uh, death carries an imaginary with it mm-hmm. or, or but but there when when death occurs it if there starts to be some real uh, um, some real change that that needs that is understood to need to be needed to happen. Mm-hmm. So the, I think the, the the hunger strike that we're going to continue talking about with mm-hmm. uh, with the current Guantanamo camp really takes that embraces that in the fact that it mm-hmm. it, it understands that the, the management of life is is also the um uh, constitute a, a, a withdrawal of ownership of the bodies any mm-hmm. anyway so in that case it, it denies it denies this, uh the fact that bodies would be used against their will if it makes sense i don't know mm-hmm. i'm, I'm mm-hmm. not being very articulate okay. <laughs> but uh uh, uh uh it's interesting in how in how it, it the hunger strike very much understands the, the logics that are at work there and, and mm-hmm. denies these logics to be applied basically in this mm-hmm. in this pres- preservation of minimal life. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so okay, let's, so let's 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 talk about this third example that okay. that is that is uh, uh, one that is uh, still occurring uh, mm-hmm. uh, at the moment when we were speaking, despite the fact that uh, Barack Obama said that at his first day of presidency. Uh-huh. <laughs> The camp will be closed. Um, mm-hmm. uh, we are now at his—I uh, uh, don't know—probably fifteen hundredth day of his mm-hmm. presidency, mm-hmm. and it's, it's still not happening. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I suppose for your own research, it must be uh, a little bit more complicated to to mm-hmm. lead as well. Although there's there's much uh, much things, uh, much documentation, I suppose. but... Mm-hmm. Um, so, could you describe us? Uh, I think in that case, uh, most people are are, are familiar with mm-hmm. uh, uh, with uh, the logics behind Cam Delta, but mm-hmm. I think it's it's probably still useful to 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 recall mm-hmm. what triggers the rightlessness in, in the mm-hmm. in this. Um, in this uh, judicial uh, twisted concept of enemy combatants, that, mm-hmm. that seems to, to to trigger to to deny any any sort of rights to the body on which right. it has been applied.
1: Right, and so we're seeing another kind of escalation and new kinds of categories being introduced with this example. Um, so in moving from the Haitian so the Haitian refugee case actually sets the precedent for using Guantanamo as the quote unquote least worst place to house this camp for what what they're calling enemy combatants right okay so um the Haitian refugees actually win their case okay so like the district court which is the lowest level court says you know the government's argument that they can do whatever they want in this space is ridiculous. It makes no sense. You could basically, if, the, if that's your argument, then you could, you could torture these people. You could, um, you know, uh, discriminate against them on the basis of their race. You could do whatever you want to them. That just makes no sense legally <laughs> or morally. Mm. And so he writes a scathing um, decision against the government And he ultimately rules that law does apply at Guantanamo and that the United States either has to make the camp an inhabitable inhabitable space, like they have to provide adequate medical care. They have to give real housing or they have to let the refugees go, release them from Guantanamo and let them go anywhere else but Haiti. Okay, so no third country would take HIV positive Haitian refugees, right, like in the Caribbean or anywhere, right? So basically, by default, these, uh, you know, almost two or almost 300 refugees end up coming into the United States. Okay, so this is a really, you would think that this is a really good thing, and it is a really good thing. For those 300 people, like it was a life or death situation, mm-hmm. okay? Um, so it's not insignificant, However, the legal precedent that was articulated in this lower level court is completely vacated. Okay, so um, the uh, Justice Department basically says we're gonna appeal the decision to the higher court. And during the appeal, the refugees would stay in camp. And then if the appeal, appellate court ruled in favor of the government, then they could maybe stay there forever. So the refugees lawyers basically brokered a deal with the Justice Department, and they said you have to abide by um, the lower court's ruling and release these refugees, but you can vacate his uh, decision as precedent. OK, So John Yu <laughs> there's like this is a very long story, but no, sorry, but, <laughs> but John Yu, who's um, one of the authors of these torture memos. Right, these infamous torture memos that basically say okay legally Guantanamo would be like a great place to put these enemy combatants that we're going to sweep up from wherever it doesn't even have to be Afghanistan or Pakistan it could be wherever and we could put them there and then we could hold them there for as long as we wanted we could interrogate them as much as we wanted and it would be fine legally right he cites this lower level court's decision and and specifically says you know it has no legal bearing anymore, so even though um a lower court has ruled that law does apply at Guantanamo, it actually you know has no legal weight, so we're good you know yeah.
0: I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just curious how mm-hmm. this actually mm-hmm. almost on the paper mm-hmm. occur i uh, mean okay. is it is it is does that mean that the decision of the court was uh, uh, um, destroyed
1: no i mean like so the, you can still like you know i'm sure you could find it on LexisNexis or google scholar or whatever you can find the actual language all it but so you can you can find um the judge's decision right from the district court but it basically doesn't hold any standing as precedent so like a fall fo- a later case that happens at guantanamo right they could say that law does apply at Guantanamo, but they couldn't refer to that case and say like, oh, previously in 1993, this court said that law does apply, so you have to apply it the same way now, mm-hmm. right? They can't do that anymore. You can't uh, refer to it as being binding law, right? So it still has this openness, mm. right?
0: And I'm sorry, that's me being mm-hmm. completely ignorant mm-hmm. in, in, uh, in uh, legal uh, mm-hmm. history or mm-hmm. even contemporary history, but, mm-hmm. Is this nullity of precedent ha- happening often, or? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so,
1: precedent is um, you know it's 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 hugely important to interpreting the interpretations of the law mm. within the court system. So, another interesting kind of presidential um, uh, detail that comes up as I'm doing this, you know, looking at these camps, is that, okay, so in the Japanese internment camps, there's a series of legal decisions that basically say, you know, the camps are legal and justified, and the U.S. government can sweep up whoever it wants and put them in camps. Okay, so during redress, some of those decisions get overturned, and so it kind of restores dignity to the people who are, who were um, plaintiffs in those cases. So one of them is Korematsu, right? It's a pretty famous case, mm-hmm. right? Um, but again, even though there's this kind of reversal of the decision for Korematsu, the person, the man, right, it doesn't actually reverse the precedent that was set in his original case, okay? So the precedent that the United States government could legally sweep up an entire population and put them in camps, that's still binding Um, interpretation of of law, Mm -hmm. right? And then at the time, like in World War II, the single dissent said basically by allowing, by saying that the United States government could do this, we're basically allowing them, allowing uh, the U.S. executive to hold a loaded gun. Mm -hmm. It it remains a loaded weapon. And we're condoning that. We're not doing our job in terms of checking the federal government's power, right? And so... um, You know, even though there's this kind of apology to Mr. Korematsu, right, saying that, you know, it was an error of fact, sorry, you know, um, that loaded weapon is still there Mm -hmm. and it can still be deployed. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so, yeah, like, okay, yeah. that's kind of like an opposite example yeah. of the use of precedent, mm-hmm. right? So, um, but this this kind of, the good precedent that I, would, I wish were still binding law, yeah. right, from the Haitian refugee case, it's been vacated. It has no standing as legal precedent anymore. So, that... Just in the form of a deal. As you were saying. Yes, right. And so, that kind of, that's cited by John Yoo, the architect of the torture memos, and kind of, it, it is um, a historical precedent for what we're seeing now, right? In terms of the legal history, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm.
0: And so you, you were explaining that uh, <clears throat> uh, this person, uh, John Yu, mm-hmm. was the, pretty much the, ar- the architect of their uh, legality or non legality. I mean, the, he's what, one
1: of several. Legal system. Yeah, he's one of several. There's multiple players who help kind of carve out the legal um, arguments for using Guantanamo as this kind of space where we can do whatever we want, but he's one of them. And what's interesting is that he was a law student at Yale Law School when um, Yale law professors and law school students were um, helping with the Haitian refugee case. And so he was kind of in, in the school, he was a star student of like the main litigator of the Haitian refugee case So he was familiar with what was going on And he used that knowledge In uh, writing this kind of uh, the, uh, In writing these torture memos mm-hmm. Years later yeah.
0: And is, that, is, that, um, is this uh, Preparatory legal work Being mm-hmm. done uh, under the uh, jurisdiction of the US military, or is that their. their so
1: he federal was. Government? The federal government. Mm-hmm. Basically the US, like basically the White House okay. and the Justice Department, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, uh, yeah, he was a legal advisor in the Office of Legal Counsel, which is like this group of lawyers that kind of advises the White House on certain kinds of decisions. It's really not a very powerful office most of the time, but after nine eleven, it became really important Mm -hmm. in terms of carving out the legal the legality of the guantanamo as camp space Mm -hmm. right yeah
0: um okay so um so now that we we talked about the Mm -hmm. the precondition the pre-legal conditions to Mm -hmm. for guantanamo to be uh again um considered as a uh to go to go on on, on your side, uh mm-hmm. not not as a legal black hole, but at least as a as a legal fiction, I think you mm-hmm. said, uh that that would um that would allow this uh, this camp of uh, of people kidnapped uh, pretty much anywhere in the world mm-hmm. under under very um uh, very uh, obscure uh suspicion of, of uh of uh, potential terrorism. Mm-hmm. Um uh now now there's is, there is those dozens of uh prisoner uh at Camp Delta mm-hmm. and uh then again we're talking about their the preservation of life in uh, mm-hmm. in, in in the same mm-hmm. way that we were speaking about earlier so could mm-hmm. you tell us more about that yeah
1: and just to go back to like the kind yeah. of legal stuff is also it. it's like it's not just about the space of Guantanamo being kind of like this you know Legal fiction, but it's also like the category of the enemy combatant mm-hmm, itself mm-hmm. is a kind of legal creation. It's a legal sleight of hand. Mm-hmm. And like a lot of people already know this, but it's like by calling them enemy combatants, we are therefore not calling them prisoners of war, which means that they're no longer or they're not covered by any kind of international conventions like the Geneva Conventions and things like this. Yeah. Right? So we're, ca- we're creating a category specifically to render them rightless. Right. And so that's just like another kind of um, side point yeah. or, or it, it's not really a side point. It's kind of a central point mm-hmm. to it. But. And,
0: and I suppose we can also <clears throat> add in terms of sites, mm-hmm. the fact that there has been similar uh, uh, similar uh, process of torture and mm-hmm. interrogation mm-hmm. Uh, done on the US, U.S. Navy boats as well, ships right. as well. Uh, right. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that we're using similar uh mm-hmm gonna call it ambiguity but yes. uh, legal ambiguity but mm-hmm. uh, it's it's in, I mean legal ambiguity seems to be seems that the law is not very much operating, but we, mm-hmm. we, we can we could claim that the law is even more operating than anywhere mm-hmm. else because of mm-hmm. this narrative construction that, mm-hmm. that needs to occur mm-hmm. for 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 this uh rightlessness to be to be fully mm-hmm. operative. Mm-hmm. Um so getting back to th- your it's it's very uh-huh. important we we're, we're mm-hmm. putting everything on the table to 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 go uh, from one aspect to the other but mm-hmm. but so um uh, some 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 prisoners of Camp Delta as have also uh uh undertook uh mm-hmm. undertaken uh, um uh hunger strikes and other mm-hmm. resistive uh, uh bodily methods mm-hmm. uh, um and there is here again um, uh, an administrative management of of the preservation of life Mm -hmm. uh, that is uh, very, very far away from... uh, I mean, we we talked about how humanitarian preservation of life was Mm -hmm. very, very ambiguous, but in that case, it's it's very much... uh, uh, We can very much assimilate it to torture Mm -hmm. itself. So Mm -hmm. could you tell us more?
1: Yeah, so... um... So there's this kind of weird tension between kind of these camps as like projects of liberal U.S., of like liberal U.S. liberalism, right? And then like the camp as like site of incarceration and like, you know, imprisonment and confinement and things like this, right? So the Japanese-American... Um, Internment camps were seen as actually projects of Americanization to create good liberal American subjects through educating them um, in terms of you know what it takes to be a good American and like hygiene and like all this kind of stuff right and teaching them that to be a good American you speak English right and um, you know you comport yourself in certain ways and things like this so they were seen as actually even by the War Re- Relocation Authority, which runs the camps, as being good good projects, like that they were seeing themselves as benevolent caregivers of these Japanese wards, right? Um, we see something similar with the humanitarian project of the refugee camp, you know, for the Haitian refugees that were helping, that you know, were pro- providing them food, shelter, and medical care, et cetera. Um, that logic seems to kind of um, it seems to dissipate with the enemy combatant camps, right? Because especially the kind of early images that we have a camp X-ray, where they're, you know, in the orange jumpsuits and the blackout goggles mm. and everything, that is not an image of liberal, U.S. liberalism at work, right? It's an it's a image of U.S. military power at work, right? Punishing certain kinds of subjects that we've deemed to be terrorists, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, but as the camp has gone on, Right? I do think that that kind of tension between u. s. liberalism and u s uh, you know uh, coercive power comes back into the foray, and it does so um, really in, in a very um, demonstrable way in the way that it's handling the most current kind of hunger strikes, right, through the forced feedings. And so um, in one of the chapters, I kind of do this, uh, I kind of track the hunger strikes and suicide attempts within the camp and how the camp management tries to kind of deal with this this issue, right? Because on the one hand, uh, you know, they're obviously, they've brought these people here to confine them, to submit them to interrogations, and then to kind of, you know, demonstrate to the rest of the world what could happen to you, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're caught being a a terrorist, quote-unquote, or whatever. Um, But at the same time, they can't just murder these people outright, you know. And if one of them dies, it actually does become an issue for them. It becomes a problem, right, because they have to do something with the body, first of all. Right. And that body then becomes evidence of something that the U.S. is doing. Right. Mm -hmm. It kind of contravenes um, the U.S.'s own image as conducting the war on terror as kind of like to protect freedom and democracy for the the rest of us. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, So with the hunger strikes and suicide attempts, um, there is this kind of effort to keep the body alive, you know, and so there's this real focus on keeping the body alive through whatever means are necessary, even if the person himself is is basically dying, right You keep that body alive. So there's several different tactics. so part of um, during the early uh, hunger strikes that started happening pretty soon after the camp opened, they would actually one of the camp com- commanders actually negotiated with the prisoners mm-hmm. and was just like, okay. We won't um, blast the Star-Spangled Banner during prayer times anymore. We, I will, you know, tell the military police to stop abusing the Quran, you know. So they were trying to negotiate something to get the prisoners to eat voluntarily. Okay. That obviously does not go very far because they still are remaining in a camp and are still being submitted to torture and things like this, Mm -hmm. right? Okay, so... um, it's
0: always interesting to see mm-hmm. how you can negotiate the things okay. that you're, you can uh, mm-hmm. yourself, uh, 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 I mean, you can, you can produce mm-hmm. oppression mm-hmm. as, as a, as a preemptive negotiation of, mm-hmm. of you withdrawing this, withdrawing this oppression as, as actually a negotiative weight, which doesn't mm-hmm. make any sense.
1: Right. Right. And it's like, in each of these spaces, um, you know, the prisoners might try to negotiate or the camp administrators might try to negotiate with the prisoners. Right. Um, what can we do to like make you stop hunger striking, for mm. example, or to make you stop protesting, things like this. So it, this we also see this in the Haitian refugee camp that one of the camp commanders comes in and he, you know, Tries to be, befriend all of the refugees, and he makes the camp better. He gives them better food. He expands the margin of it to give them more space. He, build, he lets them build a church. He brings in a television, all this kind of stuff. But ultimately, the refugees are just like, you know what? That's great, but we're still in prison, mm-hmm. and we shouldn't be here to begin with. So we're going to hunger strike anyways because you know you can't make a camp better you know, there is no better to our condition here. Mm-hmm. We need to be out of here. And until you guys listen to us and hear us as rightful subjects that shouldn't be in camp at all, none of this makes any kind of difference. Right. And so um, we see that also n- not exactly the same way, but we see some of that in the current uh, enemy combatant camp, mm-hmm. right? So they do negotiate for certain kinds of things like religious respect and, you know, things like this, but at the same time they remain in the camp condition, right? Um, so as uh, these hunger strikes have gone on, so the, they've been this kind of, you know, constant thing that's been going on at the camps. Some of them are more publicly known than others, but um The most recent one, well, they started, okay, let me go back. Mm -hmm. Um, So basically there's, um, as hunger strikes became more of a persistent and widespread problem throughout the camp, the United States, or the camp commanders at Guantanamo actually uh, brought in consultants from the Federal Bureau of Prisons Um. To help them manage the problem of hunger strikes, like what do we do? We have so many people here; it's this kind of constant problem. How should we manage this? Federal Bureau of Prisons, like the you know these people come, they tour the camp, and they recommend um, using a um, restraint chair, right? Um, and using the restraint chair to force feed. Okay, so. The camp is like, okay, the camp commanders are okay, so they order a couple of these chairs, and they start force-feeding some of the um, hunger strikers. The hunger strike at that point really plummets, because it's such a painful experience, right? And so the camp commanders find that this is very effective. They order more chairs. Okay, so... It's, they've the hunger strikes have never completely gone away but that one which was pretty that there was like 100 several hundred people participating it like the numbers go way down right but um as Guantanamo has become this kind of enduring place and certain a, a lot of these men you know have been cleared for release um but they remain in prison because the US doesn't know what to do with them right Um, they have uh, used the hunger strike as kind of a consistent resistance strategy. Mm -hmm. So this past summer in 2013, there was a pervasive, another pervasive um, hunger strike. And it was um, kind of set off by um, certain actions like um, the abuse of the Quran again and things like this. And there were certain riots and things like that but uh all of them kind of it was almost all of the camp was participating in this hunger strike except for the most elderly Mm -hmm. right who are already frail and so the u.s again steps up its kind of management of preserving these bodies right and force feeding all of them and so this is you know there were a lot of news reports last year about you know how uh, the United States brought in more nurses, brought in more healthcare workers to kind of keep them on this rotation, right? Constantly force feeding them. Mm-hmm. And um, in terms of the other question that you were asking, it is a preservation of the body, um, but it also inflicts torture itself. Mm-hmm. And so the process, um, it's pretty grotesque. And um, it involves strapping the detainee into the restraint chair. Um, it involves uh, taking a, a feeding tube and lacing it through the detainees' nasal and sinus passages down into the stomach and then force feeding them um, inshore, mm-hmm. basically. Um, so, some of the detainees who have been through this process have said that even if they even if the process went completely by standard operating procedures, which, you know, it has the flow rates, it has like um, set responses to any kind of detainee request. Could you make the flow rate slower? Could you make it faster? Like anything like that. There's a standard response to it. Things like this. Like even if you followed the SOP, it would still be a torturous mm-hmm. process because it is um, just it, it's, it's, it's incredibly coercive and violent. Mm-hmm. But the they don't actually follow the sops all the time right so like they will um they'll keep the detainee force-fed for like hours Mm -hmm. instead of 20 minutes they will instead of um being careful in the way that they um thread the feeding tube in and out they'll actually grab it and then yank it out or walk across the room with it so that the detainee can see the length of the tube mm-hmm. that went into his body, um, C- can mm-hmm. we
0: can we recommend the readers, the listeners, or mm-hmm. the videos that uh, most Death has been doing on it? Is that is that mm-hmm. faithful to their to their?
1: Mm, yeah, I have a lot of opinions on that video. Yeah, no, no, that's I, I, um, I should have asked
0: you before yeah. as far as the conversation,
1: but uh, you know, I think that video is. Um, I think that video is really important because it does show. Okay, so it's really important. One of the things about Guantanamo being at Guantanamo, that Mm. all of this stuff is happening there, is also we have very limited view of what's happening there. Mm -hmm. You know, we have a couple photographs. They do, like, kind of these... You can find, like, a tour... Online showing where they show the cell and they show that the Quran is there and that, you know There's an arrow on the floor pointing to, towards Mecca and like all this stuff that it's not that bad of a place Et cetera, et cetera, but we really don't see what's happening there mm. So we don't see what this force feeding looks like, right? We don't have a real conception of that So I think the most deaf video is useful in that way in that it shows Okay, he this is what it what it looks like when someone is strapped into the chair, This is what the feeding tube looks like. You know, this is what the process would start off with. Most stuff doesn't actually go through with the force feeding because it's so painful. Like once they start um, threading the tube through Mm -hmm. his nose, it's too much for him. And then, you know, they, they, you know, he cries uncle and they stop it, right? So, um, you know, I think there's a, that's just one of the limits to that, this kind of, performance piece, mm-hmm. right? On the one hand, it does help us at least imagine what it must be like, but at the same time, we don't really know what these detainees are going through, mm-hmm. right? No, it definitely. is it is like a simulation, mm-hmm. right? And so um, even you know, reading these thick descriptions of the experience that these uh, detainees have had to go through, it doesn't really, I, I don't think I really have a full sense of what it means to be in that mm-hmm. right, so to place this kind of other body you know before a screen to show me what it looks like is useful to a certain extent, but I still think that we're confronting some kind of limit and some kind of barrier to understanding what this force proceeding process really means yeah mm-hmm. uh-huh uh, and I don't
0: think it is a mm-hmm. I don't think it is a um, a, a reserve that. Mm-hmm. He would not make himself. Anyway. Yeah, so, yeah, uh, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have one last question, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a pity because I'm going to break our, our our very well uh, built uh, structure <laughs> of mm-hmm. conversation here. Uh-huh. But going back to the enemy combatant, I was I was mm-hmm. uh, to the status of enemy combatant. I was uh, I was thinking of something while we were speaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably, <laughs> not probably. Absolutely influenced by the fact that on my way here, mm-hmm. I was reading an excit- excitable speech by uh, Judy Butler. Mm-hmm. And it made me think how um, right now we talked about enemy commentant as a legal status, mm-hmm. but obviously it could not be working if it was not also a sort of uh, ideological status. And yeah. how there's an entire narrative that needs to mm-hmm. be... Bra- that needs to be constructed for uh, for it to be acceptable to mm-hmm. have to have uh, uh, these uh, people stripped for, stripped from any, any form of rights. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking uh, that it it was interesting how. Uh, some degree, enemy combatant is very much an elocution, an, an as, as Butler describes. So, something mm-hmm. that says what that does what it says. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah, not so much in combatant, obviously, because that's mm-hmm. something else. But, uh, the, uh, so combatant is more a sort of uh, the, the kind of fantasy, or mm-hmm. uh, I mean, at least it has to do with the suspicion mm-hmm. of, uh, but it 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 already attributes a crime. Mm-hmm. Before actually proving it, right? But but the terms of enemy is, yes. is an elocution in the yes. fact that once once you once you placed once you um, once you said it mm-hmm. once you unfold it upon one given body, mm-hmm. this body is declared an enemy, right? And therefore can be subjected to pretty much any form of uh, any right. form of, uh, of torture
1: right and um i think you put it so well by saying that you know that they by naming them the enemy like they have no way of contesting mm-hmm. that elocution right they have already been designated as such mm-hmm. right and there's nothing that they can say to combat that right or to counter that and so um one of the things that i'm looking at is uh you know they set up these kangaroo courts in guantanamo and they're like okay you want habeas corpus we'll give you habeas corpus tell you know like basically here are the charges against you there's here's a bunch of secret evidence that you can't see why don't you challenge your own status mm-hmm. that you are not an enemy combatant right and so these people come in and they're just like i'm a school teacher mm-hmm. i don't know like i was i was brought here by, I wasn't even brought here by U.S. military. Someone from, you know, uh, the Northern Alliance picked me up and things like this. Or I was a human, I was working with the Red Crescent. There's multiple people who are working with either the Red Crescent or other kind of humanitarian organizations, right? And they were picked up, right? Or, um, you know, one was like a medical worker, right? And so there's nothing that they could say Logically, Mm -hmm. truthfully, some of them even had their papers removed, right, with them saying that they who they were and everything like that. Um, So there's nothing that they could say. There's no evidence that they could produce to challenge their designation that's already predetermined as enemy, Mm -hmm. as enemy combatant. And if you actually look at um, the way these kangaroo courts shook out, some of them were designated as no longer enemy combatant. But that's a really interesting designation as well, because it assumes that they once were enemies, enemy combatants, but they no longer are. So we can let them go because they're, you know, the citizen of like France or something Mm -hmm. like that, like a more powerful country. Right. And so it's a really interesting designation. And then also I was looking at like all of these records and there's no logic to who got the designation of no, no longer enemy combatant. Some of them were combative during their uh, kangaroo court hearings. Some of them said, "You know, um, I'm not who you say I am." But their their story was exactly the same as like hundreds of others yeah. who basically had the exact same story. And those people were considered enemy combatants, and this one was considered no longer enemy combatant. So there's no kind of like logic to how even that process, that you know, kangaroo court quasi legal process worked out Mm -hmm. you know what i mean but even for the ones who um it did work out for the designation itself still assumes that they are enemy you know so it's 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 an interesting kind of uh you know creation right this this category of the enemy combatant
0: Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. well Naomi i think we could Continue for, quite, okay. for quite, a, <laughs> quite a long time, but I don't know how many of our listeners will mm-hmm. um, still be with us. But thank you, okay. thank you so much for yeah. talking uh, about all that. I think it was it was fascinating, and uh, and uh, I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one to uh, very much look forward to okay. be able to reading the book. Okay, <laughs> thank you. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you for having me. Okay.